I invite you to continue our time of worship by opening your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24. A despondent woman was walking along the beach one day, just thinking about the lousy marriage that she had had, the husband that had left her, uh, why she had suffered this miserable wretch for so many years only to have him abandon her. And as she was lost in thought and just really down and embittered about her life, Uh, she saw there lying in the sand uh, a partially buried bottle with a cork in it. And so she picked it up, dusted it off, and wanting to know what was inside, removed the cork, and suddenly there was a puff of smoke and a genie came out. True story. And the genie said to her, the genie said, uh, because you've released me from my prison, I'll grant you three wishes. But know this, that whatever you request, your ex-husband will get double of what you ask. And she said, really? Jeannie said, sorry, that's the rule. So to test him out, she said, okay, well, I guess for my first wish, I'll, I'll, I'll wish for a million dollars. Suddenly at her feet, there was a million dollars. And somewhere else, hundreds of miles away, there was two millions feet. Two million dollars at her husband's feet. Just shocking. Well, then she said, well, for my next wish, I guess I'll have a uh, Ferrari. Poof, when she got home, sure enough, there was a Ferrari in her driveway, keys and all. Of course, you can imagine how shocked her husband was when he came home and found two Ferraris in his driveway. The woman's thinking about this third wish very carefully and says to the genie, so... You're telling me my husband now has $2 million, that he has two Ferraris, that he gets double whatever I ask for? Jeannie said, yes, that's correct. She said, okay, I'm ready for my third and final wish. I want you to scare me half to death. (laughs) Pretty smart lady. We've all felt that urge to get even at one time or another. It's been said that our sense of revenge is mathematical in its exactness. And until both sides of the equation in our head are satisfied, we will not be satisfied. Our natural impulse is to even the score with those who mistreat us, those who wrong us. Our sermon text today hits on this topic head on by describing an episode in David's life, a defining moment that put his faith to an unprecedented test, and it had been tested many times up to this point. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 24 if you haven't already. It's on page 231 in your pew Bible. To comprehend the magnitude of this test that David was about to undergo, we must first recall the terrible, unjust treatment that he had received at the hands of King Saul. It all started after David had defeated Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. Do 
you remember what happened when David came home along with Saul and all the Israelites from their victorious battle? The ladies came out of the towns and the cities, and what were they singing? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And we are told that Saul began to get jealous of David that day, and that he began eyeing David from that moment forward. In fact, we're told the next day that as David played his harp before Saul, Saul got a flew into a rage. He grabbed his spear and threw it at David, hoping to pin him to the wall, hoping to kill him, and David escaped. That happened again on a second occasion. And this begins a sequence of events where, where David be, goes from being the hero to being the hunted. He is forced to lose his position as captain of the guard because he's run away from Saul's presence. David also loses the company of those who are closest to him. His own wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul. Uh, the company of his spiritual mentor, Samuel. Um, the company of his best friend, Jonathan, who ironically is the son of Saul. David at one point even loses his dignity as he feigns madness before the Philistine king of Gath in an attempt to get away. And there's more trouble that goes on from there that we've been looking at the last few weeks. And we saw that in amidst all of his fear, his anguish, his desperation, David cries out to the Lord. We know this because many of David's psalms were recorded during this season of David's life when he is on the run from Saul. One psalm we looked at, was Psalm 34, where David testified, this, more, this man cried out, this poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and rescued him out of all his troubles. And that's quite a testimony considering all the troubles that David went through thanks to Saul. Saul pursued him relentlessly, looking to kill him. David is forced to hide in all sorts of places, including the wilderness of Ziph that we read about last week, where he had to care not only for himself, but 400 men that had joined themselves to David. Men, too, that had been maligned and mistreated and were looking for real change in their lives. 1 Samuel twenty-three fourteen says, Saul sought him every day, like a bloodhound looking searching for, hunting down a wounded partridge. David could never rest long in any one place. We see that he goes from town to town, then out into the wilderness, amid the forest, the rocks, and the caves. Most recently, David went from the wilderness of Ziph to the wilderness of Maon. At the end of 1 Samuel 23, which we looked at last week, we read in verses 25 to 29, and Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on, were on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. 
That's where we left off. And in fact, that last verse in 1 Samuel 23 in the Hebrew is the actually the first verse of chapter 24, our text for today. Let me tell you a little bit about En Gedi. En Gedi is the largest oasis on the western shore of the Dead Sea. It's located near Masada and the Qumran Caves um, that you've probably heard of. A few years ago, my oldest son Matthew and I, along with Dave Mirabella and his son Mark, with a bunch of other people, got to go on a tour of Israel that was led by my uncle and another tour guide. And we stopped at En Gedi, and we took photos from a distance because it was determined it was too hot to hike there because it was well over 100 degrees that day. This past week, Dave Mirabella sent me a few pics, including the panoramic shot of En Gedi. En Gedi has a rugged mountain terrain, but is also favored with a perennial spring that's located several hundred feet up a large cliff, which we saw off in the distance. Most springs around the Dead Sea have a high salt content, but En Gedi is only one of two fresh springs, uh, that has, of two fresh water springs in the area on the western shore of the Dead Sea. This next one that you're looking at now is known as David's Waterfall. These pics remind us that En Gedi is a real place where real events happened. Around 1000 BC, En Gedi was a place of refuge for David as he fled from Saul. In Song of Solomon 114, Solomon's bride says, My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of En Gedi. So En Gedi provided abundant water for vineyards, and there's a vineyard picture there from En Gedi. En Gedi was an oasis with its lush vegetation, its waterfalls, but it was also a stronghold because of its rugged terrain. It was a well-fortified place naturally amidst all the hills, the rocks, the crags, and the vegetation. The name En Gedi actually means spring of the goat, that is, of the wild goat. And there's evidence that goats have always lived among the rocks and mountains of En Gedi. And this gives us a visual as we resume the biblical narrative in 1 Samuel 24. Look at the first four verses of 1 Samuel 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. As we have seen, En Gedi is an oasis in the desert wilderness it's located 14 miles east of Ziph in the wilderness of Maon, uh, what we have looked at in the last few weeks, with its freshwater springs, its lush vegetation, its 
high cliffs and its numerous caves, and Gedi was the perfect hideout for David and his men. And in these opening verses of chapter 24, we are told about an incident that occurred in the cave at Engedi. Verse 1 indicates that Saul had run off the Philistines who had invaded the land. And that goes to show us that human success is no sign of divine approval. The narrator says nothing about the outcome of the battle because his primary emphasis is that Saul is preoccupied with catching David. It's almost as if the Philistines were a a distraction, an interruption of Saul's main mission, which is to capture and kill David. He is still consumed with and controlled by murderous envy. Saul takes 3,000 of the best soldiers in all of Israel and searches for David and his men on the wild goat's rocks. Another translation says the crags of the wild goats. This indicates that this was truly rugged terrain. And therefore, it was well fortified. It was hard to get into. We're told that there were sheep pens outside the caves. These were probably a couple of small enclosures that consisted of um, low stone walls that flanked the entrance to the cave. And so Saul goes off the road there among the sheep pens and into the cave to relieve himself. Now you think about that expression, what you would mean if you were to say, well, I need to go relieve myself, and that's what it is. Uh, Saul went to the bathroom. Um, it's funny, the, uh, the Hebrew expression, it literally says that Saul went in to cover his feet. <laughs> and when you think about it, when you're going to the bathroom, that's what you do. It's a euphemism for going to the bathroom. And it can be a little awkward to talk about that, but I'm reminded that, you know, the Bible spares no unnecessary details. Uh, even bathroom breaks are recorded in Scripture. And when nature calls, Saul answers. Ronald Youngblood notes in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, the narrator may have chosen this particular euphemism for defecation to cover his feet because it occurs elsewhere only in Judges 3.24 where it is used of Eglon, the king of Moab, who alone in the upper room of his summer palace, we read in Judges, was killed by the judge Ehud. Saul, king of Israel, going inside the cave in search of privacy, is similarly unaware that he is placing himself in mortal danger. It's as if God had providentially placed Saul right into David's hands. And David's men certainly saw God's hand of providence in this. They saw it as an opportunity that was too good to be missed. One thrust of the sword stood between David and the throne. God had anointed David, the next king of Israel, hadn't he? It wasn't a question of if, but when. Was now the time for David to remove the one man who stood in his way? The very man who had unjustly set out to kill him? Circumstantially, everything pointed to this conclusion. Was this God's answer to David's prayer, which he offered up in Psalm 54, 
a psalm that we looked at last week as David was in the wilderness. Do you remember what he prayed? Here's a portion of that prayer. God is my helper. The Lord keeps me alive. May the evil plans of my enemies be turned against them. Do as you have promised and put an end to them. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For you have rescued me from my troubles and helped me to triumph over my enemies. David's men, aware of David's prayer, and seeing what's happening here in the cave, see this as God's answer to David's prayer. And they told him so. And David responds to what they say. Not by killing Saul, but by cutting off a corner of his robe. Yesterday, Dave Mirabella emailed me, and I thought he made a really good point. If you, if you get a sense of what Engedi was like, think of the many waterfalls in the caves that are in the area. If Saul was in the mouth of the cave, relieving himself, the sound of the waterfalls would have probably kept Saul from hearing David sneaking up behind him. It would have been easier for David to approach him undetected and to cut off a corner of his robe. The perception of David's men and David's act of cutting off the corner of Saul's robe brings to mind a principle that we learned from Saul's misperception of the situation at Keilah. Remember we looked at that last week? In 1 Samuel 23, verse 7, when Saul saw that David was shut up in the city of Keilah, Saul said, God has given David into my hand, for he has trapped himself by entering a town with barred gates. And Saul could not have been more mistaken. You could almost transpose this present situation onto this very verse, where David could have said, Saul, God has now given Saul into my hands, for he has trapped himself in a vulnerable spot by entering this cave and being in a compromised position. And David would not have been more mistaken in terms of what God was doing here. And this serves, brothers and sisters, as a warning to us. Be careful how you interpret life circumstances, lest you substitute your will for God's in any given situation. Sometimes we may want to do something so badly that we have eyes to see almost nothing else so that any circumstances we view as God's favor upon what we want to do. And we saw in the case of Saul that he was dead wrong. Scripture, not circumstances, must be our guide. David's men made the same mistake. They thought that God was giving Saul into David's hand when what was happening is that God was really giving David a test. Would David take matters into his own hands or would he leave Saul in the Lord's hands? Based on everything that follows, the answer to that question is yes, David would leave Saul into the Lord's hands ultimately. But David didn't fully do that initially. David did not do that entirely at the very start. We know this because after David snuck up behind Saul and cut off a corner of his robe, we read this in verses 5 to 7 of 1 Samuel 24. And afterward, David's heart struck him 
because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. The Hebrew word for struck in verse 5, when it says that David's heart struck him afterwards, is a powerful word. It's the Hebrew word nakah, which means to beat or to wound. It can even mean to slay or to kill. And the point is that David's heart was pummeled with guilt over what he had done. Think, Pastor Matt, well, what did he do? All, he could have killed Saul. All he did was cut off the corner of his robe. But David knew in that moment that circumstantially he had a green light, but scripturally he did not. It was one thing for God to promise David the kingdom. It was another thing for how that promise would play out. Would it be God's way or would it be David's way? One commentator wrote, The end that God ordained must be reached by the means that God approves. That's a good principle for us, isn't it? The end doesn't justify the means. The end that God ordained must be reached by the means that God approves. David knew that once a person is anointed, set apart for God, that person is consecrated to God as the king of Israel. So to lay a finger on that person was in essence to undermine or attack the Lord himself. David's act of cutting off a corner of Saul's robe may well have been a symbolic declaration of revolt against Saul. Because remember, the clothes signify the person's position. Do you remember we looked at this a few times over the last several chapters? Do you remember back in 1 Samuel 15 when uh, Samuel rebukes Saul for his disobedience and Samuel turns away from Saul and Saul reaches after him and grabs Samuel's robe and it tears? Samuel turns and he says to Saul, and God has torn away the kingdom from you. A few chapters later in 1 Samuel 18, we, we see the covenant between Jonathan and David. And remember how Jonathan stripped himself of his royal robe and, and gave it to David along with all his accessories. And we said, that is a sign that Jonathan as the crown prince was joyfully, voluntarily yielding the throne to David, knowing that it was God's will for him to be the next king of Israel. Saul, Jonathan's father, does the very next thing involuntarily in chapter 19 when the Holy Spirit overcomes him and Saul strips himself of his royal robe and lays naked on the ground indicating against his will that God has stripped the kingdom from him. So when we think about the, the person's clothes representing his positions and the fact that David cut off a corner of Saul's robe, the fact that David's conscience was smitten by the fact he did that. He truly sensed in his heart that he had sinned by doing that. What's the significance? Well, commentators believe that it might have been a symbolic act of revolt. 
That is to say, how many men are with David? There were 400. That number has swelled to 600. David knows he's going to be the next king of Israel, so it could send a message to Saul, a piece of the kingdom's already mine. And I'm going to take it from you piece by piece until I'm king over all Israel. It would seem that David's motive in doing what he did and the meaning of the act itself of cutting off a corner of Saul's robe I think is the only legitimate explanation as to why his conscience pummeled him. Thankfully, David stopped himself in time from doing something more drastic. Twice he tells his men that King Saul is the Lord's anointed. I shouldn't lift up my finger against him to harm him in any way. David even refers to Saul as my Lord. God is the one who would put Saul on the throne. And God in his time would remove Saul from the throne. It was not David's place to do that or anyone else's. In fact, if you look again at verse 7 where it says, So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. We have to remember there's now 600 of them in the recesses of the cave. They're saying, David, look, this is your opportunity. God has placed him right in your hands. Kill him while you have the opportunity. And David persuades his men not to do this. The word persuaded is a, is a very powerful term in the Hebrew, which the Hebrew worm shasah, and it literally means to tear into. Isaiah uses the same word in chapter 53 of his prophecy when predicting the Messiah's sufferings and saying he was wounded, he was shasah, he was as it were torn apart for our transgressions. It's as if David tore apart his men with these words. And, and the idea is, is that it bordered on physical violence. You had one man standing for the truth. One man who was committed to doing what was right. And 600 other soldiers that were convinced otherwise. And yet David stood his ground. In his perseverance, his courage paid off. Because his men didn't harm Saul. Saul actually when he's done going to the bathroom, gets up and leaves the cave unharmed. This incident in the cave was a critical test of David's faith, a test of his integrity, his patience, his piety. David passed the test, ultimately, but David did not pass the test perfectly. His motive initially was not right. He acted impulsively and then regretted it afterwards. But David is to be commended for his tender conscience. Simply cutting off the corner of the king's robe cut David's heart to pieces. And I thought to myself, oh, that we would cultivate that kind of sensitivity to sin. How many times do we commit a little sin when it could have been a far greater sin and we say, well, at least I didn't do this or I only did this. David cut off just a little piece of Saul's robe and was even undetected by the king when he could have killed him. And yet that little act, because it was sinful in David's motive, sinful in his intent, his conscience was pummeled with guilt afterwards. 
May God give us such sensitivity to sin. You know, David's greater descendant, the Lord Jesus, faced the same test on a far greater scale. I thought it was so cool that I know some of you uh, follow uh, the McShane um, Bible reading calendar. And today's assigned reading, part of it is in Luke 4, the temptation of Jesus. Where the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor and said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me. And I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. How did Jesus respond to this temptation? Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus responds by quoting scripture. Deuteronomy 6.13, and emphasizes that the Lord God is the only one who is to be served. The fact that Jesus says, Him only you shall serve, indicates that the temptation from the devil wasn't necessarily to stop worshiping God altogether, but only to serve the devil also. Matthew Henry wrote, For the devil knows if he can but once come in as a partner, he shall soon be sole proprietor. God the Father had promised his Son the nations as his inheritance, the ends of the earth as his possession. That prophecy was given in Psalm 2. That's what that psalm was all about. But God's will was to come to pass God's way. Not by Jesus deferring to the devil, but by doing God's will. The crown would come by way of the cross. Jesus passed the test perfectly. And brothers and sisters, we can be glad he did, because by his wounds we are healed. Jesus paid the penalty that we incurred for our countless tests that we have failed. Yesterday, my nephew underwent an interview with Senator Tim Scott's office in South Carolina, hoping to get a congressional appointment to the Naval Academy. He has to go through the same process with Senator Graham's office. My brother was texting me yesterday asking me to pray and said, it is a grueling process. Only the best of the best get in. And as I was working on my sermon and thought about that interview, I thought to myself, you know, if I, if we were to be interviewed for entrance to heaven based on our merits, based on our qualifications, we would all be denied, wouldn't we? Because God's standard is absolute perfection. And the Bible says unequivocally that all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. But Scripture goes on to say, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good news, isn't it? 
if we base our qualifications not on our merits, but on Jesus' merits, then admission to heaven is absolutely guaranteed. For whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. My nephew doesn't know if he's gone again to the Naval Academy. But I can say that based on the assurance of God's word, I know that I'm going to get into heaven. I know that I will spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ because I am basing my salvation not on how good I am, but on how perfect Jesus is. That he lived a sinless life in my place. He died, the, he took on himself the penalty that I deserved on account of my sin by perishing on the cross of Calvary. And then he showed that he triumphed over sin, over death, and over Satan by rising from the grave victoriously three days later. I am banking 100% on Jesus Christ. Because if I bank on him, I'll be in heaven. That's my testimony, and I hope it's yours as well. That's why the gospel is good news. Jesus told his followers in Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But the question is, are we going to try to go about obtaining that kingdom our way or God's way? I think there's a second temptation that we face even as believers is when we pray, thy kingdom come, are we willing to endure a measure of discomfort, um, suffering, um, perhaps even some sacrifice in this life as we await the consummation of the kingdom? Or do we want our best life now? You know, when Jesus said that quote in uh, Luke 12, where he said, Fear not, little flock, for it is my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He was talking about that in the context of money and possessions. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or wear. God's given you the kingdom. Don't you think he's going to provide for your needs in this life? He says the Gentiles, the, 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 those that are outside of the faith, those that don't see God, <clears throat> they are the ones who seek after these things, money and possessions, trying to always get more and accumulate things to themselves and trying to hold on to what they have. But that's not a kingdom mentality. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. How you handle your money is like a microscope looking at what's really going on in your heart. This kingdom mentality goes beyond how we handle our money and includes how we treat our enemies. This too appears in the same context where Jesus is talking about the kingdom. How do we treat our enemies, those who wrong us and mistreat us? Are we content to leave them in the Lord's hands? Or will we try to take matters into our own hands? Will we try to even the score? Will we do good to those who hate us, believing that God will reward us for that? And we'll also deal with them in his due time. Well, let's see how this played out in David's interaction with King Saul once he left the cave. The interaction with the king takes place in verses 8 to 22. First, we see David's apologia. 
his defense of his character and his conduct towards Saul. David's apologia appears in verses 8 to 15 of 1 Samuel 24, where we read, Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As I pictured this scene, I I imagine how Saul's legs must have turned to jelly. (laughs) when he realized just how vulnerable he had been in the cave. Just how close he had come to certain death. But before he responds to David, David shows respect for Saul's position by how he addresses him and how he acts in front of him. David bows with his face to the ground. David calls Saul, my lord, the king. He even uses a term of endearment, my father. Let's remember that David was the king's son-in-law. And there were times in the past where they had enjoyed sweet fellowship together in those early days. And David says, why do you listen to the lies of those who say I seek your harm? And even here, David is is using a lot of tact because David knows full well that the lies and the murderous thoughts have arisen from within Saul's heart. That's where it all started. It didn't come from others. It came from Saul. And he's the one that poisoned others by the bitterness that was in his own heart. Yet David is doing what he can to speak as generally and respectfully as possible to show Saul that he has no bitterness against him. He wants God's best for him. David goes on to defend his own character and his conduct towards Saul. David calls out to Saul, God providentially gave you into my hand. I had the perfect opportunity to kill you. Some even told me to do that, but I spared you. Look at the corner of your robe in my hand. Do you understand how close you were? Do you understand what I could have done? Look, see, recognize this. There's no treason in me. There's no desire to harm you. I'm not going to raise up my hand against you. I have no intention of hurting you. Now the Lord may take vengeance 
on you for me, but that's His call. It's not my call. An old proverb says, evil deeds come from evil people. So be assured that my hand will not touch you. I think there's, there's also a suggestion that if you keep coming after me, it's an indication that you're evil. That there's still evil in your heart, Saul. David concludes his defense by saying in verses 14 and 15, After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. The original Hebrew has no punctuation mark, so it's kind of left up to the translators to determine the sense of the words. And I think that if David's words in verse 14 could be translated with question marks all the way through, If he were to say, who have you come after, after a dead dog, after a flea? Given what he says in verse 15, David could be indicating to Saul that by coming after me, you're really coming after God. Do you think that you're dealing with a flea, with a dead dog, when you're pursuing me? The Lord will judge between you and me, and the Lord will deliver me out of your hand. That could be what David is saying. David's trust in God determines his treatment of Saul. I want you to see that the two go hand in hand. Your trust in God will determine your treatment of others. That's why Paul writes in Romans 12, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Let me just pause right there and say, I think that's where David messed up initially in the cave. David's men said, God has given Saul in your hand, and David acts without thinking. He acts without praying. David acts impulsively, and he regrets it afterwards. While he ultimately passed the test, he didn't pass it perfectly because his conscience smote him. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans twelve seventeen to 21. The point being, vengeance is the Lord's, not yours, so live accordingly. That's the bottom line. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to you. So live accordingly. Naturally, when someone wrongs us, we're like that bitter woman on the beach making a bad wish against her ex-husband. We want people to pay for what they've done to us. The problem is that we leave God out of the equation and look for ways to get even. But God calls us to entrust ourselves to Him. For he is the great writer of all wrongs. In Jesus, we find both our pattern 
as well as our power to do what is right. 1 Peter 2, verses 20 to 24, listen to this, written to believers. If you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. Listen to that again. If you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned and never deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his own body on the cross. Why? So that we could be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. See what Peter is saying? Jesus, yes, is our pattern. He's our example, but he's also our power. Because of his death on the cross and victorious resurrection for all who believe in him, we are not only forgiven of our sin, we are freed to live a God-pleasing life. And that life includes the power to forgive those who wrong us, to do good for them to those who mistreat us. How did Saul respond to David? Well, let's look at his answer in verses 16 to 22. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. David had referred to Saul as my father. And Saul responds by calling David, my son. And Saul begins to cry. In commenting on Saul's reaction, Alan Redpath wrote, quote, This poor, wretched man who spent his days battling with God had suddenly come face to face with the love and patience of God shining through another man's life. And in that moment, it melted Saul. End quote. Saul confesses his sin. He confesses David's kindness. He says that David is a better man than he is. And he says that David will surely be king and that God will repay David for his kindness towards Saul. And at the end of his response, Saul asked David to swear as Jonathan did 
that David won't kill Saul's family when he becomes king. And David swears that he won't. In fact, David promised Jonathan he would look after them. And afterwards, Saul goes home. But where does David go? He goes back to the stronghold. Back to the hills and the caves and the vegetation of Engedi. And this shows that David wisely continues to distrust Saul until he shows the fruits of repentance. Not mere remorse. Sadly, Saul never does. I believe that Saul's emotions in this moment were real. I don't think these were crocodile tears. I think he experienced true remorse over how he had treated David. And his heart was broken by how kind David had been to him. But those emotions were only temporary. Whatever feelings he had in that moment soon evaporated because Saul let the opportunity for repentance pass him by. And the narrative will go on to show that Saul would stubbornly proceed down the path of sin and self-destruction. I thought as I read that, how sad it is that that's what so many people do today. They hear the Word of God, maybe even on a morning like this, through the message, through the music that is played, the songs that are sung. They hear God's Word. They can feel the Spirit stirring in their hearts. They may even feel broken inside. They may even weep over their sin and desire a true change in their life. They are deeply touched by the love of God. And as they hear afresh of the incredible sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross, they're broken over their sin and they're burdened to do something about it. I want my life to be different. But then like Saul, they never follow through. They never truly repent and commit their lives to Christ. They walk out of church and Within a few hours, sometimes even a few minutes, their sense of conviction is gone. And the voice of God, once again, is silenced as they are distracted with other things. Sunday football, work responsibilities for the upcoming week, upcoming get-togethers with family and friends. Alan Redpath said, Eternity is decided by a series of choices which each of us makes in the course of life. What choice is God presenting before you today? Will you follow through? Or will you, like Saul, simply go home? Let's pray. Lord, fill now with your Spirit hearts that full conviction know that the streams of living water from our inner man may flow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.